2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Let me be clear, the department does not tolerate any mistreatment of any migrant and will not tolerate any violation of its values, principles, and ethics.
3: Deputy of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said horse patrols have been suspended and an investigation is underway after footage emerged of Border Patrol agents using horses to block and move migrants on the banks of the Rio Grande. A massive migrant camp sprouted in the town of Del Rio, Texas, peaking at about 30,000 people, mainly Haitians, many of whom have been in Mexico or other Latin American countries for years. The camp has now been cleared. Some migrants have been deported. Others have been allowed to stay in the United States, at least temporarily, to pursue their claims for asylum. However, the controversy over the treatment of the Haitian migrants remains. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland & Knight, a former immigration official in the Obama administration. Leon, there's been outrage over the conduct of these Border Patrol agents.
2: So it's clear that what they were doing was they were taking the reins from the horses and using them to try to uh, restrain people trying to come into the country and also to push people back into Haiti. But the point is, regardless of what you're doing, A, the optics of the situation are unfortunate, but B, all of this is a result of a lack of planning on how to address foreseeable surges into the southern border. And so this is where I have a bit of frustration because I have a lot of sympathy toward the Biden administration, but this is now October, basically. And you could have taken the time period that existed due to the COVID crisis and due to the fact that when you inherited the border, it was a closed border, and say to the immigration community, we need a few months, to build the plane first before we fly it. And the problem is you have them had that. You have them trying this whole time to simultaneously fly the plane and build it. And so you've never put the capacity there to have expedited processing, to have efficient adjudication of asylum so that you would never get to a position where you would have thousands of people surging in any one location.
3: Now, we've heard a million times, and Secretary Mayorkas said this, the immigration system is broken. But do they have the ability to do what you just suggested within the parameters of what they're working with?
2: Well, the point is you never have the ability to do it instantaneously. But you have the ability, if you invest in a momentary pause, to build a system with your allies in the region that actually has regional processing centers all around the region where people can go and ask for asylum or refugee status. And then if you try to get around them and go to the Southern border, you would tell people, no, there's no entrance that's allowed here. You're being excluded from the country because you have to apply for asylum through these regional processing centers in Mexico and in Central America. There was a way to do this. And unfortunately, this time that could have been used during the COVID era to say to people, look, we can't allow people to come in through the southern border during the COVID area. We weren't allowing people to do this vis-a-vis Europe until November. You could have used that same time period that we had with Europe and built a very solid refugee system that processed people abroad, and that was fair, and that actually had a robust number of people that you let in. You could have done that, but that wasn't done.
3: Mayorkas was asked if the administration policies are encouraging more immigration. Is that true to a certain extent? Are some of the migrants coming here because Biden is in office?
2: Well, there's always a factor here that's sensitive to what people are hearing. And so what people are hearing sometimes can be true, and what people are hearing can sometimes be false. And so you can't control if smugglers are telling People false narratives about coming to the United States, but in this case, the narrative had some truth to it, because you had, for in the Haitian example, the temporary protected status for Haitians in the United States was extended to a larger group of Haitians that had already had that status, and I agreed with doing that. The point is, if you're going to do that, then you have to say, well, the foreseeable outcome of that is there's going to be a desire from other Haitians to want to come into the United States to see if they can take advantage of both this program or maybe a later extension that would happen for additional Haitians. And so at that point, that's where you have to say, these things don't happen in a vacuum. We have to have a a system that is compassionate, but also is stringent for people who don't want to use the vehicles of compassion. And that's the place where I think, there will be an equilibrium on this. You're starting to see it, but that equilibrium is going to take some time to develop.
3: Leon, what do you think is likely to happen with the investigation into the border agents?
2: Well, the point is this. You, whenever there's any use of force, which is essentially what this is, you have to go through the protocols of a use and force investigation and determine whether the use of force was justified or not in a particular situation. And the problem with a lot of these video footage is is you don't get the whole context of what was happening before, what was happening after. Nobody has any idea. Now, are the videos that you saw, the sharp context that you saw them in pleasant videos to look at? No, they are not. But until you have all of the information and all of the facts, it's hard to make a determination that someone acted 100% without cause or acted in the wrong way Because you don't know what they're trained to do in that situation. You don't know what was happening. You don't know what they did in the reality the minutes before that. And so there's nothing that anybody can say commenting on it that takes the place of an investigation. That's what's required under the law. And so that's the new process that's necessary here.
3: As far as the numbers we've been given on the Haitians, about 12,400 were released into the U.S. waiting to have their asylum cases heard by immigration judges, 5,000 processed by DHS, 3,000 in detention, 8,000 returned to Mexico, and only about 2,300 were on flights to Haiti. So my first question is, What happened to the Biden administration using Title 42 to turn the Haitians away? Did they decide that wasn't a good idea? I
2: think they've been pretty consistent about the fact that they want to use Title 42 in situations that it's single adults. In situations where there are families or unaccompanied minors, they are not wanting to use this Title 42 authority. And so the reason you saw these disjointed outcomes is because there were some number of people in families and they didn't want to use the title 42 in families. And even with some single adults, you can't use title 42 if they have absolutely no paperwork and Mexico isn't willing to accept them. So you have to have some plan for once you send them to Mexico, what's going to happen to them? Because Mexico is also a, partner in these Title 42 efforts, and so it's a lot easier to use Title 42 with Mexican nationals or even with Central American nationals that Mexico can have a plan for repatriating back to their neighboring country, but with Haitians, it's a lot more complicated to use Title 42 because the Haitian doesn't belong either in Mexico or Central America or the United States or anywhere else. They belong either in Haiti or some of them had gotten some permission to reside in other parts of South America. And so Mexico would say, why are you bringing these individuals here? They have no jurisdiction to be here. And so that's why you saw these disjointed outcomes.
3: You said the Biden administration doesn't like to use Title 42 to expel families, but they're appealing a judge's order that forbids them from expelling migrant families under Title 42.
2: Yes. And I think there's two issues there. Number one, there's the issue of having the tool in the toolbox. And so they definitely believe that they need to have the tool in the toolbox. But simultaneously, while they're in this litigation, they don't want to have thousands of families being excluded under Title 42 because A, that weakens their litigation position that they're only using this tool when it's absolutely needed. But B, They don't actually have a lot of desire to use this tool for families because there is some sympathy for these children, especially sometimes when the children are vulnerable ages and you're seeing them at the border and you're seeing very sympathetic cases. It's hard to simply just turn those people back and say, good luck to you, you know, never come here and whatever happens to you happens. And so you have those factors, you have the sympathy factor, you have the fact that in the litigation, you're trying to keep the tool alive for when it's really needed. And also, though, you don't want to have thousands and thousands and thousands of cases, because that makes it a lot easier for the plaintiffs to win than if you say you're using it only for cases where it's absolutely needed.
3: Now, a notice to appear is typically the first step in the deportation process but the biden administration is handing out notices to report what's the difference
2: so we've talked about this in the past there's been this litigation about that your removal proceeding is totally nullified under the law now the supreme court has said this twice if you get a notice to appear that doesn't have the exact time date place and location of the uh, hearing. And so what happens is when you're having thousands and thousands of people and you have no idea where the heck these folks are going to, how can you, say, appear at the U.S. Immigration Court in Chicago on October 4th at, at 7.30 a.m.? You, you don't know. It's, it's way too complicated. And so what they want to do is try to get people to do an ICE check-in and only then issue the notice to appear that has the data that's needed. Because if you issue the data that's needed, if you issue the notice to appear without the data that's needed, and then the person either misses the court date or never shows up or anything, then you actually can't move forward with their removal because everything was void. You never gave them the right process in the beginning. So what they're trying to do is arrange a situation where if the person doesn't show up to their ICE check-in, they can be detained. And then you can give them their notice to appear with their actual right hearing date. And actually, what you would do is you would do it in the detention facility itself, as you would say, here's your first hearing. And once you've given them their first hearing, from then on out, you've complied with the requirements under the law.
3: The DHS secretary also spoke about the conditions for asylum, which we've talked about many times And it seems that when you you listen to the stories, that a lot of the Haitians are claiming asylum for economic reasons. Would economic reasons ever get you asylum?
2: Purely economic deprivation is not sufficient to get asylum. Now, you can have a situation where if what you're suffering is pure economic deprivation because of your political opinion. So let's say they say People who supported this presidential candidate will never be allowed to get a job or access to banking or access to food or anything else. Even if you're not tortured or not placed in jail or anything, that can be asylum. But if there's general economic deprivation countrywide, and it's not based specifically on your political opinion or your social group or your religion or your race or your national origin then that's never going to be sufficient to get asylum, which is why many people who apply for asylum don't end up qualifying, is because you have to fit that very narrow group of people of why they are suffering.
3: Some people are predicting that this is going to happen at the border again. Is the Biden administration doing anything right now to prevent this from happening again?
2: Well, the only thing that's happening right now under the Biden administration is they're trying to get a new regulation out that would make meritorious asylum claims easier to grant right there at the border so that the less meritorious asylum claims are placed into a smaller pile of cases. The problem is, at the end, right now the current backlog is in the millions, and no matter who you're placing in this quote-unquote smaller pile, And no matter who you're prioritizing, you're seeing this already, for instance, in Boston and in Los Angeles, these priority dockets, quote unquote, still have 1,500 people in cases for one judge. And so that judge isn't going to get around to doing all of those 1,500 cases anytime soon. And so even if you said, well, the goal was to get those done in nine months, it's clear you're not going to get those done in nine months. And so I just think at some point, We have to grapple with a system, and neither side has done this, neither Trump nor Biden, because Trump, in the end, didn't have the goal of wanting the meritorious cases in the United States. Their approach was they didn't want any cases in the United States, and the Biden administration hasn't wanted to be perceived as overly insensitive to these cases, which is also a valid goal. So both goals are valid, depending on how you look at it. But I just think we need to get to an approach finally at some point where we have regional processing centers in Mexico, in Central America, where people can go and make those claims and actually have assistance making those claims. So they don't do it on their own. They would have people from our government assisting them to make these claims. And then those cases get adjudicated and you either use that process and you get into the United States or if you don't use that process, you are automatically excluded from the United States. And I think that's the fairest thing we can do for this hemisphere is to give people with fair asylum claims a chance to do it, but it doesn't have to be at our southern border. And so this is what continues to be the complicating factor here.
3: So the governor of Texas has said that they're going to start arresting people for trespassing. Is that the order that's being challenged by the Biden administration?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, that's the provision that Jan Brewer in 2012 during the Arizona law and all of those Supreme Court cases. She was trying to do the same concept basically, which was to arrest undocumented people for trespassing in Arizona. But yeah, this being challenged—it's one of many things being challenged by the Biden administration. But the interesting question is, they're trying to tee up an issue that if you look at who decided the Arizona decision, that was a 6-3 decision. But the six justices who ruled for the case, the only ones who are left are Robert, Sotomayor, Kagan, and, and Robert. And so you have five justices Who either ruled on behalf of Arizona or are new to the court, which is Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, and Gorsuch. And so the question is would those five justices end up overturning the Arizona case? And so it's possible that with these five justices who are not on the record or on the record on the side of state enforcement of immigration law, they may decide that the Arizona decision should be overturned and that states can start doing immigration enforcement that would be similar to, for instance, states enforcing drug laws. The federal government enforces drug laws and states enforce drug laws. And so you might end up actually seeing that, and I think that's not necessarily going to be decided this week, but it's definitely something to be looking for during the course of the Biden presidency.
3: Okay, so now I want to talk about the Biden administration released its proposed measure to preserve and fortify DACA.
2: Well, one of the criticisms that has been given in this litigation about the legality of DACA was that DACA was not simply an issue of prosecutorial discretion, but was actually a program. And why was it a program? It was a program because it had requirements. You had to be under 16. You had to have arrived prior to 2012. You had to have not committed certain crimes. And so once you start putting criteria on these lists of prosecutorial discretion, and it's not just a case-by-case decision, but it's actually based on criteria, that that needed to be something that was done through formal rulemaking. And so one of the things that the court had said was that DACA was illegal because formal rulemaking had not been issued to actually implement the program. And so now the Biden administration has finally, after all of these years, decided to implement the formal rulemaking for the program. Now that will shield it from that attack, but then there will be the ultimate question, which is the one that we've been at this for 10 years and nobody's ever ruled on definitively, which is, is DACA illegal? I mean, can a president actually shield a certain segment of the population from removal, and then actually allow them to work in the United States? That's the question that hasn't been decided yet. And so that's the question that will ultimately be teed up to the Supreme Court as a result of this regulation. So they'll be able to get all of the procedural reasons for invalidating DACA out of the way. And we will now be finally teeing up this issue of is DACA at the end of the day something a president can or can't do? So
3: this rule will will answer the concerns that that Texas judge had.
2: Yes, it will. I it will answer the procedural complaints that the Texas judge had, which is that the proper procedures were not followed in implementing DACA. That there wasn't the formal rulemaking and then notice and comment where people can comment on the rule and say what they don't like, and then you issue a final rule. That's going to take care of all of that, but it won't take care of the judge's decision that in the end DACA is illegal, that the law does not permit the shielding of a certain group from deportation, followed by then not just the shielding, but the implementation of work rights and rights to travel abroad from this group. And so with that, that will finally be the substantive legal issue deed up to the Supreme Court is whether DACA is actually legal or illegal. And so that's the issue that finally no court is grappled with. Finally, the Supreme Court will grapple with it at some point.
3: That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight.
1: We have a lot to talk about today. Let's get started with Apple TV+. Plus.
3: One thing CEO Tim Cook did not talk about at the Apple event was the injunction that will go into effect on December 9th, requiring Apple to make the most significant change to its App Store business model since launching. In the antitrust lawsuit brought by Epic Games, the judge ruled that Apple must give developers the option of bypassing its commission on in-app purchases, a cut that runs as high as 30 percent and could cost the tech giant a few billion dollars annually. Joining me is antitrust law expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, there was a lot of talk after the decision about the hit to Apple, but it was Epic that filed for an appeal first. So who won this case?
1: It was pretty much a loss for Epic and a lot of gain for Apple. And you're right, Epic filed the appeal because they want to go further than the judges' somewhat limited but very interesting injunction which will stop, to some degree, the requirement that you can't steer people to a less expensive payment system.
3: Did the judge's ruling leave enough room for Apple to try to keep its App Store revenue stream largely intact? For example, it could still collect a commission of up to 30% despite the ruling.
1: Yeah, there's nothing that prevents Apple from collecting whatever it can collect. And the mechanism that Apple chose, which is to run it through its own payment system, is smart from Apple's point of view. As she pointed out, it makes sure that they track all the revenue that's generated through the App Store, everything that flows through, they get. And it doesn't say they can't charge royalties to app developers in a different way, using different formulas. You know, any party that's trying to do something like what Apple's doing has to figure out a way that will allow them to make the charges and not too many people will escape. So it's not clear, even at this point, how many people will escape or whether consumers will bother to choose because they still have to have the option of paying through you know, an in-app purchase. And I don't play video games, but my guess is consumers in the middle of the video game would prefer to click than have to do two clicks, which seems to be an impossible burden. for people so it may not siphon off that much revenue epic will have to give some sort of incentive to gamers to do this to you know make the out of app purchase of a longer life or a wand or whatever in the world people purchase for so much money apparently on the video games they run like fortnite so not clear how much of a difference it will make. And if it does start to make a revenue stream difference, certainly Apple can figure out a different approach. The judge's order doesn't say that Apple has to keep Fortnite on the App Store. So they could say, you know, unless you pay us X number of dollars, you're out of here. And I don't see anything in the order that she entered that forbids that. And in the main part, the federal charges, It seems to me it's pretty clear that they could do that. So a lot yet to be written. And of course, this is just one case. You know, there are cases elsewhere, and it's unclear what the federal government might do. This may be a little bit of a roadmap in certain ways for the federal government. And of course, there are non-U.S. governments, Korea, in the process of passing a statute dealing with app stores in the fourth highest revenue jurisdiction in the world, which is South Korea
3: the key part was the fight to define the market in question. The judge disagreed with both sides about the definition of the market. Tell us what she decided and whether that will affect any future lawsuits by the Justice Department.
1: Well, first of all, one thing to keep in mind, I think, in terms of how it might affect future cases, her decision was very much fact-bound. In other words, it depended a lot on the evidence presented to her by the parties. Now, these are very good lawyers, so they tailored the case in the way they thought would be best, but to some extent, it didn't convince in a number of different ways. It's not clear that that's irreparable. So for example, a big thing was that she didn't believe that consumers were really locked into the Apple platform. I am not an Apple user, you may be, My view of Apple users is they're fanatically locked in. So this may be just a failure of proof that it wasn't quite presented. She didn't say they weren't locked in. She said Epic didn't prove they were. Now, if they're locked in or they can't exit, I would prefer to think of it that way. That means that if you want to serve roughly half of the consumers of games or any app, you've got to be on that platform. I mean, you just can't give up that market. And if they won't migrate over to Android or something else, you are subject to the power of Apple. So I think a future case may look at the facts differently or try to present them a little differently. So this does not bind all future cases. And you're right. The lead off question is how do we define the market? It's very unusual for a judge to pick a market that neither party proposed and that she has to sort of make up market shares, which are sort of guesses because they're really wasn't all that much evidence about this market. And the market shares turned out to be pivotal because they're under 60%. And for monopoly power in the U.S., you're not going to find cases where the share is under 60%. So that was a big deal. It could be different next year. You know, Apple selling more iPhones, their market share might be higher. They might find themselves next year as having monopoly.
3: And so Apple dodged the worst case scenario right. that the judge might determine that it was a monopolist.
1: Right. Right. That was the first part. But that wasn't she wasn't content to stop with that. She tied up. She said, OK, let's go on, uh, because there's a different claim that counts. It doesn't depend on there being a monopolist. Different number of counts. Just, you know, it's just the agreements and restraint of trade. And then she undercut the case completely or not, whether the conduct was anti-competitive in a very thorough way. Although she did indicate that it did have some adverse effects on developers, on consumers, and on innovation, you know, that the App Store itself, it sort of sat there, not, you know, Apple just milking it and not really making it better, despite complaints about various um, functionalities that it didn't have. Sort of reminds me of what Microsoft did with Internet Explorer for so many years. They used it as a gateway, and it was a terrible program. So there's that. But in the end, she cut down the case in every which way and very thoroughly.
3: So do you think that in the future, either other plaintiffs or the government can use her decision as a roadmap for their case?
1: Yes, I think, you know, people do, as a teacher, I, i firmly believe that people learn (laughs) so um, really (laughs) yes i believe it's a belief it's not necessarily true but it's a belief (gasps) so um i think you know any litigant um still concerned with the app store and there are both with, with google and um and with apple um will look at this and say okay where where did the case not work and how can we do better in the next case, what sort of facts would we need to present better um, than in a way that would convince the next judge, you know, different judge. And again, these were factual determinations. She said Epic didn't carry the burden of proving some of these things, not that Apple showed it was untrue, just that the plaintiff didn't carry its burden. So, yes, I think there will be some roadmap effect. I think that the end of the case, the California part, actually is the most interesting and maybe isn't getting as much attention as it should, because I think that's a roadmap for the Federal Trade Commission to use um, not the Sherman Act, which is a normal thing, but unfair methods of competition under the Federal Trade Commission Act. And that's what she finally went for.
3: Harry, will you just go back a bit and explain what she did in that part of the case?
1: So what what she did was after she pretty much eviscerated uh, Epic's case, she said, "Uh aha, but you also do have a state claim under state law. And there were two state laws. One is California's state antitrust law. So she threw out all those claims as well under state antitrust law called the Cartwright Act. But there's an unfair competition law in California, which just prohibits unfair methods of competition. And she said, well, this is a little different because that's broader than the way we look at things under normal antitrust law. Um, We're not confined to um, such a high standard of proof. We can look at what she called incipient violations, not quite violations. And that gave her the room to say, you know, there's really some anti-competitive effects here. They're charging this huge commission rate. Four years, which they haven't adjusted, under which there's no competitive pressure to have them adjust that 30%. They're making huge profits. I mean, plaintiff showed that she accepted that idea, uh, and consumers are being denied information so they can make choices. So they're not told, hey, you know, you you could we you could buy these things outside the app and it, and it would be cheaper. They're not being told that. So she said, "You got to tell them," uh, and that lack of information, which she found important for markets, markets need information, uh, could be an unfair method of competition under federal law, under Section Five of the Federal Trade Commission Act. If the FTC wants to use that route, it's not quite this is broader, gives them a little more power, uh, and. Um, I think that's an interesting roadmap for the commission to look at.
3: Harry, Apple said it's still too early to determine how or when exactly it will implement the changes and that it needs to have conversations with the judge. Is that normal that you'd have conversations with a judge who already issued a ruling about what you're going to do?
1: Well, there's always implementation. And um, she did issue an injunction. I don't recall whether there's a time within which they have to implement it and that could be subject uh, to negotiation. they could um, take an appeal to the Court of Appeals to have them stay the imposition of that injunction pending you know full review of the case. so that's a possibility um, and you know the judge also could say you know show me that you can't do it but I don't believe it and you just remove this restriction. So just follow this injunction. I don't see why it's so hard. So it's hard for me to say whether, you know, there's still some play in the joints on this. But, um, you know, judges, when they enter injunctions, you usually want the litigants to obey. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a litigant, you, you want to obey. You don't want to be held in contempt. Uh, so um, if the judge isn't, I don't know whether she's scheduled any hearing, and we already have appeals by Epic. I assume Apple's going to appeal as well. Um, so uh, hard to say exactly when this will happen, uh, or if it will happen. It, it, the Court of Appeals may simply um, stop the imposition of the injunction until, um, until the appeals are fully heard.
3: Do any appeals issues, you know, jump out at you?
1: Oh, the first thing I would say as I would read that case from Epic's point of view is, oi, <laughs> what are we going to do? So it's a pretty thorough opinion. I mean, I think, frankly, there's some legal mistakes in it, but are they critical legal mistakes? I'm not sure. You know, it might be picking around the edges, but that's not what Epic's about. And I think they have to attack the fundamental way the court decided the case, when a lot of it is factual. And appellate courts don't sit to review the facts, although they do, but they don't say they do. So the appellate courts are there to review matters of law. And it may be that they're going to have to come up with an argument for why her choosing this market, this non proffered market by either side, and this particular one, why that is reversible and infects the whole rest of the case. So I think. Shall we say it's not a slam dunk reversal to say the least.
3: People are pointing to this decision as proof that the antitrust laws need to be updated. Do you agree?
1: Well, I do think the antitrust laws that there are have to be legislative fixes to some of this, some having to do with putting the burden of proof in certain cases on defendants. I'm not a hundred percent certain what a legislative fix would be for this opinion. And the courts are generally conservative in the law, but I don't read this so much as a judge who's conservative in the law, as a judge who's not quite convinced by the case that's put before her. So as a general matter, these cases are not faring well at the moment and they're going to take a long time. And this is an argument for legislative change, maybe more so the FTC's case against Facebook and the coming cases against Google you know, there's a good argument. Something should be done, particularly with regard to the large platforms. But one thing this case reminds us is that each of these high-tech platforms is a little different. They offer somewhat different products. They present different competition issues. They're tied together because they're such powerful companies, and they're so ubiquitous in our lives that people are concerned about them.
3: It's always a delight to speak to you, Harry. Thanks so much. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. top researcher doctor Faye Fei-Fei of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. An unconventional audit of Maricopa County, Arizona, nearly 2.1 million ballots by a company with no experience in election security, found the hand count of ballots largely matched the county's certified election results with Biden winning an extra 360 votes under the audit ordered by Republican state senators. Despite the results, Trump allies pointed to the report's claims of malfeasance and errors by election officials, which county officials said are easily debunked by anyone familiar with election processes. And the Stop the Steal movement is going forward with election audits in other states, even Texas, which Trump won. Joining me is Liz Howard, senior counsel for the Brennan Center for Justice. So, Liz, tell us about the Maricopa County audit.
4: So, you know, one of the most important things from from the report is that it provided additional confirmation that Biden did, in fact, win the election in Maricopa County you know, but unfortunately, it also shows where, again, these actors who have no experience in election administration simply took routine election administration practices and attempted to cast what they don't understand as suspicious. And we've seen um, the same cast of characters use this playbook over and over and over again. And really, you know, are concerns that this is just you know, an effort to sabotage our election officials and our election system by sore losers. Trump
3: and his allies
4: are using
3: the report to say that there were problems with the election in Arizona. What are they
4: using in the report? So, for instance, one of the um, things that they're using is uh, they have classified as suspicious, falsely, that there are over 2,000 Arizona voters who share the same name and birth year. So this is actually not suspicious, and there are multiple reasons that we can explain this. So for instance, the birthday paradox, which explains that in a group of about 40 people, there's a 90% chance that two will share the same birthday, which would just be month and day. Um, And here they're talking about people that share the same name and birth year. Obviously, especially when they're clustered around the same year, you're going to see were named, you know, rise and fall in popularity. So for instance, Jennifer was the most popular name for girls born in the 1970s. So there were about 160 Jennifers born every day in the USA um, between 1970 and 1979, right? And so facts like these mean that it's not unexpected for there to be multiple voters in Arizona, which has over 3 million voters who share the same name and birth year. Do we know
3: how much it cost Arizona to do this audit?
4: I think that they are still working on total cost estimates. But what we know right now is that um, the Senate costs are closing in on half a million dollars. And one of the other big costs that has been incurred in the Arizona partisan review has to do with the costs required to replace the voting equipment That was given over to the cyber ninjas, who, again, have no experience in election administration and are not certified by the federal United States Election Assistance Commission to test voting equipment. The replacement cost for this, um, for the equipment in Maricopa County, has been estimated at $2.8 million. And those are just the financial costs of this audit. You know, of course, that doesn't begin to address the other cost of this audit to the election officials who have had to spend, you know, an inordinate amount of time, not only, you know, just transferring the ballots and the voting equipment um, to the Senate, but also debunking all of the false information that continues to come out from uh, the cyber ninjas and others associated, again, with this partisan review in Maricopa County. So despite that...
3: Texas is now going to review results from four large counties, three won by Biden. But this is in a state that Trump won. What is
4: the governor saying? Why are they doing this? So the governor's statement didn't include any details. What he said he's going to do, or that the Secretary of State's office is going to do, is a forensic audit. So first, the Secretary of State's office is vacant right now. They're is no secretary of state uh, second i am unaware of and of what exactly a forensic audit means and he has not provided any details that i'm aware of about what exactly that means to him in texas or for our election officials
3: and then in wisconsin is there also an
4: audit in wisconsin scheduled yes yeah. so again In Wisconsin, the election results have already been audited and the Trump campaign already conducted a recount in multiple Wisconsin jurisdictions. The audit conducted by election officials and the recount, which was done in conjunction with campaign officials and led by election officials, both provided confirmation that Biden won the election. Currently, there is a legislator that has established a separate entity led by a gentleman named Gableman, that is tasked with reviewing the election results. This process has already been marred with concerning procedures. For instance, Gableman sent out requests for information to multiple clerks in the state of uh, Wisconsin, and this request was sent to the sandbox and otherwise marked as a concern in the inboxes of many of the election officials because the email address from which it came was a Gmail address, and the Gmail address wasn't for Mr. Gableman. You know, we have serious concerns about this. And the process in Wisconsin is also costing Wisconsin taxpayers thousands and thousands of dollars.
3: Liz, you were talking about some of the election machinery having to be decommissioned in Arizona. Explain why they have to do that.
4: So, so far, what we've seen in uh, multiple states is, Right, the equipment is handed over to these actors, who again do not are not federally certified and are not contractors of the local election officials, subject to, to various restrictions. The Secretary of State in Arizona, after she spoke with and in coordination with um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Sent a letter to the Maricopa County officials saying that there was a significant concern because the voting machines had been accessed by these people and the voting machines were um, decommissioned. And also what you've seen in Pennsylvania, where a small county provided access to their voting machines to one of the vendors that is also associated with the Arizona Partisan Review the Department of State's office in conjunction with the vendor said you may not use this equipment again.
3: And in Pennsylvania, are they moving
4: for more audits? In Pennsylvania, so to be clear, the election results in Pennsylvania have already been audited twice. In Pennsylvania, there is a statutory, um, what we think of as a traditional post-election tabulation audit, where election officials in every jurisdiction in Pennsylvania, review 2,000 or, or 2% of the ballots cast in their jurisdiction. And again, so that initial statutory audit provided confirmation that Biden did win the election. And um, 63 out of uh, the 67 jurisdictions in Pennsylvania also voluntarily participated in a risk-limiting audit. And that audit, again, provided further evidence that Biden won the election. So this election has already been audited multiple times. There is really no need at all for an additional audit at this juncture. So when initially um, a legislator who's been a a very public stop-the-steal proponent sent letters to multiple local election officials in the state asking for information, very similar to what the subpoenas that the Arizona legislators used when taking all of this the ballots and the voting machines from Maricopa County officials. The local election officials who had seen what had happened in Maricopa County told that legislator that they were not going to be responding to his request. What we've subsequently seen is is President Trump publicly identifying the Republican leadership in Pennsylvania and demanding that they do something to audit the results. So recently they um, sent a subpoena to the secretary of state asking for um, a variety of information about the election, which would include the last four digits of the social security number of, of uh, some voters, which has been a significant concern. And there is now um, litigation regarding, the, um, regarding that subpoena.
3: There's been so much reporting about the number of legislatures that are changing election laws.
4: Do you have numbers on how many states? So generally, right, like the, the state legislatures are going to be the ones that are determining state law. So state law, of course, doesn't um, cover every situation. So, um, you know, local election officials have some discretion. The amount of discretion that they have is going to vary state to state, which will depend upon state law. So we put out um, the voting laws roundup periodically, and I think we just had one that came out um, a couple of months ago, and that does categorize and
3: numbers. Are most of these laws being challenged in court?
4: So my colleagues recently filed in Texas regarding um, the bill that was just passed there which addresses some election administration practices. Um, And of course, uh, you know, what we just saw in Texas is is the governor just announced that the Secretary of State is going to conduct a forensic audit in four counties.
3: So the states that are passing these laws, is it about more than access to the ballot? Is it about giving county officials control over election results at some point? So
4: I think are a couple of things. So while in multiple states, we've seen some of the most concerning provisions stripped out of the bills that were subsequently signed into law. So for instance, in Texas, one of the only provisions that was struck from the voting bill that was recently passed would have allowed the state legislature to basically overturn election results. It would have been a manner given them the power to certify um, different election results than what the vote count indicated. And so while it didn't pass this year, I have concerns that this is not the last time that we're going to see bills like this in Texas and, and in other states across the country. Again, you know, with what we're seeing across the country i mean these these appear to be efforts to sabotage our election officials um and to sabotage our election administration system you know we we know that um you know what these um partisan election reviews are actually doing is costing taxpayers millions of dollars um and they are furring on um death threats and other threats against our election officials, and they're wasting the time of our election officials, um, which now, in their normal calendar, they would be beginning to plan and prepare for elections um, in 2022, which are which are coming up. Uh, because you know, one of the again, one of the most concerning things about this is the election that they are um, attempting to uh, cast doubt on happened almost a year ago. Uh, Joe Biden was sworn in in January of this year, you know, nine months ago. What they are endeavoring to do is not about increasing voter confidence.
3: Thanks, Liz. That's Liz Howard, Senior Counsel for the Brennan Center for Justice. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.